came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader in the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, with which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Thanks, Heidi. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. If it's your first Sunday, uh, welcome to our church. Glad you guys are with us. Uh, We are in a sermon series right now in the book of Acts, the New Testament book of Acts. So if you have a Bible or a phone app, you want to turn there, please do. You don't have to. This will all be on screen here in a second. But if you want to see some context or something, feel free to do that. Uh, We are approaching the end of the book. We are in chapter 24 today, as you just heard. And there are 28 chapters in the book, so we're uh, getting towards the end. It's been about a year plus since we've been in this series, so we're approaching the end soon, and, and uh, we'll uh, put a nice cap on it here in a few weeks. But in the meantime, we are entering into the final stretch where Paul the Apostle, who you just heard about, who is one of the main characters of this book, he was a Christian murdering Jew uh, who converted, uh, who Jesus appeared to on the road to Damascus and said, here I am, I actually am I'm alive, I'm real, this, uh, this Jesus, this way you're persecuting actually is legit, 
and now you're mine. You're my son. I, I'm going to call you to go and bring the gospel, my gospel, the good news of my death and resurrection, which atones for sin and overwhelms death to the nations. And so he, he was a primary instrument of God to do that, to bring the gospel to non-Jewish people. But here we see he went back to Jerusalem, back to, as he said, my, my nation, to bring alms and these uh, offerings or gifts of money to the poorer Christians of Jerusalem. So these Jews who are Christians in Jerusalem, they're receiving this, this money from richer Gentile Christians. But he also knows that he's hated there. He's uh, considered a traitor, a sellout, and so uh, he thinks he's going to die. And at this point, he actually knows Jesus appeared to him last week, if you were here for that, and says, I want you to witness about me and testify about me in Rome as well. So he knows that's going to happen, but he also has this kind of like, these might be my last days uh, kind of moments here as well. But the last part of Acts, and if you're brand new to the book of Acts, Acts tells us the history of what happened after Jesus rose from the dead and how the church was born. Uh, but, but all throughout the book, we, so we see kind of defenses of this as well. Acts is actually full of sermons. It's full of speeches and um, paragraphs and, and almost pages of like witnessings and testimonies about what people saw with their own eyes and heard with their ears. And in Paul's case, this wasn't just a story or a myth or a lesson or like a, a pick-me-up story, but it was history. It was fact. It was God came into the world through a person, through his son, Jesus. He took on flesh and died for the sins of the world. And so a lot of Acts is like these long, these long testimonies, these long speeches, these long sermons about these things. And the last part of Acts has three in a row before three different Roman officials. So this week is Felix, next week is Festus, and the week after that is Agrippa. And so after that, we'll have like a story about Paul traveling to Rome and, and, and getting into this big shipwreck in the Mediterranean, and then he'll get to Rome, and it'll be kind of a nice cap on on the book uh, that we'll read about in chapter 28 after that. But this is kind of, we're approaching the end here. And these final speeches tell us a ton about the gospel and a ton about what Christianity is. What does it look like when Christianity comes into a city or comes into dead hearts like ours or comes before like a literal judge and a governor in Felix, like in Felix's case? What does that look like? How does it present? How does it look? And, and I hope you guys will see, if you're brand new to Christianity or not a Christian yet, I hope this will be really helpful for you, just to kind of get a sense for this. If you're a Christian, this will be a great reminder. Uh, it'll speak to how we want the gospel to come in, in all of its beauty, but all of its kind of challenges and, and kind of problematic pokings of our pride, but being the best news ever at, at the same time as well. So kind of keep an eye out for that as we go. You, got, you already heard it, uh, but keep an eye out for that as we go and really preach this um, today. I'll also say this, I can't say it enough, and so I'm going to say it again. This is not just history, remember. This is theology. Meaning, we don't just learn principles from Paul's life when we look at a passage like this. We do, but we don't just do that. Instead, we see Jesus in his life. And so the lives and actions of others as well, like Felix, we'll see this, but especially Paul, we see in him the life and words of Jesus Christ himself because this is a major Christian theological point. Jesus lives in Christians. He is alive in Christians. And so when Christians act and speak, uh, it is many times Christ himself who is doing that. And so we have this kind of theological underpinning for it, but also this symbolic way theologically that, that the narratives of the Bible present just to say that this is history and we learn something about Paul a man but we also see in him symbolically the Christ himself. And we've been talking about that a lot in this series, but if you're brand new, just keep that in mind as, as we go. 
So what I want to do today is approach this passage from the vantage point of three people. Tertullus, who is the accuser of Paul in this passage. Paul the Christian and Felix the governor in that order. So Tertullus the accuser, Paul the Christian, and Felix the governor in that order. I'm titling the sermon though, uh, Paul to Felix, with respect to the resurrection of the dead uh, because of its central uh, kind of place in uh, this, uh, in this passage, central importance in, in this passage. So a little bit of a bunny trail off the cuff here, but, but please hear this before we begin. Paul is on trial not because he was a good guy, not because he was a humanitarian or a moral teacher. He was on trial because he preached that Jesus rose from the dead. That's why he's on trial. That's what he says, right? Remember when it was just read? He's on trial because of the resurrection of the dead, or because he's, he's preaching this and the grace that orbits around it. That's why he's on trial. That's why he's hated. That's why he's being brought before the governor, this Roman governor type guy, by these non-Christian Jews who just hate him and are offended by, by his message. That is, this is the central motif to all of Christianity. If it's true, then everything else Jesus said and did matters. Everything else he said, everything else he did, if he rose himself from the dead, everything else takes on this heightened importance, right? Everything else the Bible says takes on heightened importance. Jesus' death all of a sudden matters because it means it accomplished something rather than just happened. This can't be overstated theologically or practically. This, the resurrection, is the crux. It's the best news in the world for people who are marching toward the grave like everyone in this room. For those who are sentenced to death, the news of a man who was crushed to death on our behalf, but then who rose again, is not just nice, some nice fairy tale or some like pick-me-up story. It is oxygen for the suffocating. It's literally, literally everything. All right, so with that said, let's, uh, let's spin off onto these three men who in their own ways teach us gospel lessons. They show us the Christ. They teach us about the nature of how Christianity comes into a city. What is sin? Um, There's warnings here for tasting the gospel but not swallowing it. We'll talk about that later. A whole slew of things, but we'll break it down by way of three lenses, and we'll start with uh, Tertullus, the accuser. All right, so I'm I'm kind of subtitling this. Tertullus, ironic, deceptive, yet unwittingly truthful accusations. Let's read verse 2 and 3 again. And when he, Paul, had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, since through, but speaking to to Felix, since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace, and by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. So he's kind of coming before Felix and saying, Felix, you're just so amazing. Thank you for being awesome. And it's, it's before you that I present my case now against this and accuse Paul uh, before you and ask for your, your ruling in our favor. All right, so a couple things off the cuff here that you may have noticed. Uh, there is, and I said it here in kind of the subtitle of this, but there's an irony in play. And the Bible loves irony. It's a, it's a literary device that kind of helps tell the story. Uh, but the irony is Tertullus, in front of Paul who's the ambassador of Christianity uh, in the story, but, but right here in this passage, in whom Jesus Christ himself resides, Tertullus is 
quick to acknowledge the peace that Felix has brought to the region and to thank him for it and later for his kindness, and yet so quick to reject the peace and kindness and loving restraint that God has shown to the world through Jesus' death and resurrection. And Jesus is standing right there inside Paul. You see kind of the irony in play? I mean, if you, if you know the gospel and you know the story of Christ, these words that are kind of credited to Felix are things the Bible says elsewhere directly about Jesus. He too is kind, the kindest being in the universe, and has brought unprecedented peace to the world through his son's shed blood. And yet, Tertullus is so quick to reject the greater versions of those for the sake of the, um, honestly, the more pathetic versions uh, expressed through Tertullus, or through Felix. All right, so moving on, he's, he's quick also to acknowledge that the reforms that Felix is making are good, and yet, as a Jewish man, he can't see that the reforms Christ is making to the Old Testament himself are even better. So, in other words, Felix is making changes or reforms politically, but Jesus, right there in Paul, is making changes covenantally. Uh, For example, he, he calls himself, Jesus does in Mark 2, new wine that needed to be drunk and taken in and received over and against the old wine or the things of the Old Testament. That's, that's just literal reform language in Mark 2. He also declared that now all, Jesus did that all things would orbit around him, not the temple and the old laws anymore, but now his body because it was his death that would bring peace. So like Colossians 1.20 says, Jesus made peace between God and people. How? By the blood of his cross. So he didn't come as as a teacher of peace, as like showing the way of peace as if it were something to point to. He was the actual way. His shed blood was the means by which God forgave. It was the means by which he expressed forgiveness and love. He poured out punishment on himself, essentially, so that justice would be done, but mercy might be shown uh, to us, sinners, dead ones, those who are not at peace with God. I was watching uh, last week the movie A Mission Impossible Fallout. Have you guys seen this? It's the latest installment of the Mission Impossible series. Um, is that right, Mission Impossible? That's right, isn't it? It doesn't sound right for some reason when I'm saying that. But anyway, the, the Tom Cruise thing, anyway. Mission Impossible Fallout, but at the beginning of that movie, uh, essentially, there's this statement, and it says, and the whole movie is kind of built off of this. The statement is that there has never been peace without first a great suffering. The greater the suffering, the greater the peace. I'll read that one more time. There, is, there has never been peace without first a great suffering. The greater the suffering, the greater the peace. Now granted, if you've seen the movie, it's the anarchists that are saying that, so there's that. But, but, that, but that aside, that is a very, very Christian statement. Extreme, it's hard to get more Christian than that statement right there. With Christ himself in mind, it's dialed up. Uh, Isaiah 53.5 in the Old Testament, which forecasts Jesus, it says the punishment upon him is the thing that brought us peace. The punishment upon Jesus who was perfect and did not deserve it, but who was a willing sacrifice of atonement, or the one who was struck for us, his punishment brought us, the ones who deserve to be punished, peace with God, reconciliation with our Creator. 
So, and with it then, that's an objective idea of peace, but with it, it's subjective as well. It's inside, it's internal. It, It does something to us because with this comes the knowledge that you all can go to bed tonight knowing for certain that God loves you. Certain that you're reconciled with him. For certain that death is not the end. With 100% certainty. Because he's done everything. And because we know that the Bible declares the fact, God says, I am making a way for peace. And it's through the works of my hands, not the works of yours. So there's a question, like, did I do enough? Because that's what we would think, right? Did I do enough? Have I said enough or done enough or abstained from enough? But because it's God's hand and it's his like, effort to work for peace, we can go to bed tonight, at, we can actually sleep well, knowing that whatever we suffer in life, and we are all sentenced to death, right? But God has made peace with our souls. God has made peace with our bodies. He's made a way so that hell is not a thing for those of us who believe. It's not a threat. It's not a fear. It's not a, oh, that might be a part of my future. That is true peace. That's what the Bible talks about with peace. Not that you'll always have peace with other people. Not that you'll always feel it. But that through Jesus, you, will, you have peace with God. And Christ's blood accomplished it. It won it for us. And so if you believe that Jesus did what he did 2,000 years ago and put your trust in him, that's what the Bible calls faith. It's an active, clinging to him kind of belief you will be saved, and you can have this kind of good sleep at night uh, knowing that 100% certainty we know where we're going when we die. All right? Felix is a glimpse of this peace, but Jesus is the reality. Tertullus misses this, but Paul knows this. All right, then moving on to verse 5. Tertullus says, We have found this man a plague. Ouch, right? A plague. Dang. Um, So let's talk about this idea a little bit. Um, I think that these are carefully chosen words. Um, Certainly on Tertullus' case, this is history, this happened, and yet Luke, the author of this book, um, I think is recording this in a way as well to tell us something theological here. And so so here's what I want to do. I just want to handle this. Remember, ironic, deceptive, yet unwittingly true. Uh, Tertullus's accusations are. And so, on the first side of things, Paul is not a plague. This is wrong. Christianity and the Christian message is not a plague. On a physical level, if anyone's a plague here, it's Felix. If anyone's a plague to the Jews, it's Felix and Rome, which he represents, which at this point in history had annexed the Jews' land and set up camp right in their holy city. If that's not a plague, like physically, I don't know what is, you know. But Tertullus is kind of like bypassing this, flattering Felix, and then calling out uh, Paul uh, as a plague instead. It's kind of a a flipped idea. But there is a bigger plague here in Acts 24 as well. It's not named, uh, but it is at the forefront. Maybe you saw it. It's dripping all over Tertullus, hanging all over Felix, and even inside Paul, too, who is a Christian, And the plague is sin. The the Bible makes this clear all over the place. Sin equals plague. Or plagues equal sin. Sin's a plague. And plagues typify it and resemble it and sort of show it off narratively in the Bible all over the place. It would take all morning to to even get through half of the, the references for this in the Bible. 
sends the plague in this passage, Tertullus misses this, sends the plague, Jesus is the cure. And, and in fact, we see all over the place in the, in the gospel accounts of the New Testament that Jesus acts in a very doctor-like way when it says, and this is one example, like in Luke seven twenty-one, Luke, the same guy who wrote Acts, wrote this about Jesus' life. It said, Jesus healed many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits. And so what we see here, whether it's a physical plague or a spiritual plague as it pertains to evil inside of our bodies and hearts and in our, in our minds, the sins we, we, we commit against God and people, or whether it's physical, that what this is saying is the cure is from Christ himself. It's his touch. It's his body. In other words, and again, not ourselves or trying harder, but the gospel as a type of counterplague that then spreads by way of the church's preaching to all people. That's really important to see here narratively in these passages. If you have not read this before, is when, when Jesus touches people, like the point theologically is healing comes from Christ's body. Healing comes from outside of us, not inside, but outside of our bodies. It's from, a, from an alien thing to our bodies. And so, and that actually leads me to the second part here. So on, on the one side of the coin, Christianity is not a plague, but on the other side of the coin, Christianity is a plague. And Paul here, because he preaches Christianity, is a plague. Both in the sense that the Christian message is disruptive and problematic to us in our pride, but also just in a positive sense, in that Christianity is spreading like a plague to all kinds of people everywhere. It's, it's like the, the Jews who are trying to stop Christianity from spreading are playing the board game pandemic over and over again. They keep losing. You know, Romans, Greeks, Syrians, Africans, Jews, slaves, free, men, women, young, old, rich, poor, kings, servants, all types of people are believing the gospel every single day. And it's happened throughout all of history, but, but right here in context, they just can't stop it. And the more they try to cut the heads literally off of Christians to stop it, the more it spreads. It can't be stopped. All types of people in all parts of the world are being saved from their sins by Jesus Christ, by believing he existed, believing he lived, believing he died on a cross for their sins, believing he rose again from death, and that that's sufficient for them. All kinds of people. And so they've been infected by the indiscriminate plague of Christianity. And that's a good kind of infection. Maybe sort of like, maybe you guys have heard of this before, but um, researchers now are starting to infect cancer patients with viruses to help cure cancer. Have you heard of this? It's crazy. I know very little about it, but I know enough to know it's actually happening. It's crazy. Infecting people with viruses to cure cancer. It's sort of Christianity is kind of like that. A living organism that's alien to our bodies, alien to our bodies, that comes in, and destroys our sin cancer. In other words, the cure, again, as we just talked about before, does not come from inside of you. It does not come from inside of me. It comes, it's alien to us. It's outside of us. It's objective to us. It comes from God and what he has to give us and how he has to pour himself out in suffering and in misery and in taking on all of the darkness for us as the light of the world. 
so that we might be redeemed and, and saved. If you've ever had, a, had, had like an immune system issue and your body can't heal something so you need help from medicine or something else that you drink or take, that's a wonderful picture of Christianity. Our bodies, ourselves, our good works, our moral efforts fail and so we need something outside of us to be infected by take it in so that we might, we might be saved. And so in a lot of ways, again, I say unwittingly true because Tertullus is certainly not thinking this. He's speaking beyond himself when he says Paul is a plague. It's kind of like, no, it's not. And yet, it totally is. It totally is. And that's really, really good news. If you actually think about it, the virus as a helpful metaphor for Christianity really is extremely helpful because it gets us to grace and away from ourselves. All right, here's a question for you, though, and I'm, I'm posing this now because it's on topic. It's a slight turn. Uh, last summer, I was reading somebody who, who asked, these are not my words, but who asked this, um, and I'll just throw it up here. He said, in the Western church, it's as if we've been vaccinated with a mild case of Christianity that prevents us from contracting the real disease. So, and, and I could spend an hour talking about this. I'm not going to. It's not the main part of today. But let me just throw it out there. All right, think about this. Have you been infected by Christianity or just inoculated with a small dose of the disease so that the gospel isn't beautiful to you anymore? You know? Like, it's possible to be exposed to Jesus but not take him in. It's possible to know about Christianity, to gather with a church, to have Christian friends, even to take communion, but be just as hellbound as you were before you danced around those things. Now, and for some of you, that might be kind of where you're at in your journey, and that's great. You know you're not a Christian yet. You're just kind of like starting to taste the gospel, and that's great. But for a lot of people, they don't realize that they're actually not saved. They think they are. And they have some kind of like fake, sort of true, but not really version of Christianity in their, in their blood. And it sort of prevents them from contracting the beauties of grace and to be, to be wrecked by it. Um, and so we can look the part of a Christian, but his grace hasn't truly sunken in or taken over our whole life. Now, it just so happens, Felix in this passage is a great example of this. So I'm going to wait for a second to kind of, I'll, I'll circle around and come back to this in, in a few minutes. Uh, but for now, kind of let that sink in. Uh, we are in a comfortable society. There's a lot of bad theologies about Christianity floating around out there that we entertain all the time. And sometimes we deflect them, or we have help from other Christians or pastors or books or people or whatever to deflect them. But sometimes we take them in. And this is just a question to think about with yourself and your own mind and your spouse or your friends or your community groups this week is what does this look like? What does it look like to be inoculated with, some, with a mild case of Christianity but not actually infected by, by the true plague or, or disease? All right, we'll come back to that. Let's move on, though, to Paul, the second figure in today's passage. Paul, I'm on trial, he says, or on trial, because of the resurrection of the dead. Let's read verse 20 again. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. And that is this, and he quotes it, right? It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. 
So here, here's the big question I want to talk with, for a few, with you guys about and unpack this for a few minutes. The big question is, why is the resurrection the thing? Why is that the thing? Why does he isolate it? Why is it a trigger word for these Jews in this particular setting? Why are they triggered by it? But then why is it such a focus for Paul at the same time? Why does he hold it out? Because actually there are a lot of things here that probably got him on trial, but he says he, he chooses to focus on this one thing. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. All right. So a couple things it can't be, and um, if, you, if you've been here for Acts, you've you kind of heard me take this little buggy ride through this thing a couple times already. Um, Acts is painfully but beautifully repetitious in this area, all right? So let the repetition kind of wash over you, but if you're brand new to this, this will be the, the first time. Uh, but let me walk you through it. First, what it can't mean. It can't be just because it's a fantastical idea, because Many Jews believed in a physical bodily resurrection. We saw this two weeks ago, or was it last week, two weeks ago, whenever um, we saw the Pharisees of the Jews, a sect of the Jews, did believe in a bodily resurrection. The Sadducees did not, and so that's part of it for some of the Jews. They, they, they are against Paul's teaching about Jesus and the fact that he rose from the dead. They are just on a basic, just like a, just a topical level. Like when it, com- when it comes to the resurrection, they are just antagonistic towards it. They are against it. And so this is probably part of it for some of the Jews. They didn't believe that the Old Testament taught this. But here's the thing. That doesn't explain the anger or the desire to kill him. This is not just a disagreement over terms. Over like, oh, my theology book said this. Oh, interesting, yours said that. This is not like, this is not like a, a calm, measured disagreement, right? We have like... They want to string him up. They want to kill him. They're exceedingly angry. And so this can't just be about the fantastical notion about the resurrection or simply that they thought it was an unbiblical uh, tenet. But instead, this is what it must mean. So that can be a part of it. But here's the bigger thing, though. And And I think it relates to what we've been seeing time and time again in Acts. And that is, The resurrection and the idea of the resurrection, especially as it pertains to Jesus, but also our future bodily resurrection, strikes at our pride. In other words, Paul is not, nor any Christians in the book of Acts, preaching about awards for obedience to God's commandments. That's not what's being preached but about something else entirely that doesn't even pertain to them. What they're preaching is God has defeated death for us. What Paul is preaching is God has gone out and slain death with a long spear, with his body essentially, and he's done that by the works of his hands, not ours. And when Paul talks about this, he's actually hitting on a subtle theme of the Old Testament, a suggested implicit theme about a future idea or reality. The the resurrection is in the Old Testament, but it's veiled, it's foggy, it's hidden. And so when Paul preaches the resurrection, he's pulling on something very subtle. In other words, he's not an ambassador for the clear, more obvious teachings of the law anymore, like the Ten Commandments. He's not an ambassador for the more clear, obvious things of the Old Testament. 
he's picking on a subtle, hidden, in the weeds, veiled for a time in the Old Testament until Christ got here, but veiled for a time theme. And he's drilling into that idea. He's talking about reform, new wine, a better way. But here's the crux of the matter, and this is why the idea is so problematic for the proud. The resurrection of the dead is something we can't do. Do you understand? The resurrection of the dead is something we cannot do. Who's good at this in the room? See, this is why it's problematic for proud people like us that love to self-justify and to make ourselves look good and to be rewarded for obedience. Christianity is saying our obedience means nothing. It's not about it's what matters is not our moral effort, but about something completely alien to our bodies and outside of us, what God has done in history. If obedience matters, if it, if it matters at all, it's our obedience towards the gospel or the obedience of faith, uh, Romans 1 talks about. Not obedience to God's laws, but the obedience of faith, the obedience unto the fact that we're trusting now that what God has done is enough. He's come into the world to save. This is huge. We can strive to do good, but we can't raise ourselves from the dead. And even when it pertains to Jesus' resurrection, no one was there, right? I mean, no one's expecting Jesus to be alive. Those few women ran to the tomb or went to the tomb with spices on that first Easter morning to scent the tomb, essentially, but they weren't expecting the stone to be rolled away and Jesus' body not to be there, right? No no, No one helped Jesus roll the stone away. No one... Help, say, Jesus, put your arm around me and I'll help you out of the tomb. Because we don't cooperate with salvation. We don't assist God in saving ourselves or others. He, he does it through his church, sure, but it's completely a gift. It's, it's the works of his hands, not ours. It must be. If the resurrection's true, it must be an act of God alone in which we don't cooperate with him at all. So that's amazing news for those of us who are dead and who can't move. But to those of us who think we're alive and who think at the core we're good, this is problematic. This strikes at our pride. We don't like this and we want to shut the mouths of the the communicators of it. And this happens today too. Not in a let's kill them in, in the public square kind of way, but in other ways. We want to hold our hands over the mouths of of Christians who say this. I'm saying we broadly here, realizing I'm speaking to Christians and most, most Christians in the room, but, but still, right? As a Christian, this is hard. This is humbling. This is a still hum- best news ever, but do you see how humbling this is too? The true gospel will be the best news ever, and yet, oh, I didn't do anything. I didn't, I didn't participate at all. So maybe you're thinking at this point, wait a minute. But doesn't God just raise good people from the dead? And doesn't that mean that resurrection in our acts of morality go together so the resurrection can be seen as a type of award? And the answer to that is no. And we actually know that from this passage. Check this out. Paul says, all will be raised, both the good and the bad, the just and the unjust. 
And so this is, again, increasingly problematic for Tertullus and all these Jews who are sitting there thinking, see, this is why we've got this guy here. This is offensive. You're saying God wants to save really bad people? Paul's saying, yeah, and I'm the worst. That's why I'm here. I'm, I'm trying to tell you Christ's blood is so powerful that even I can be safe. All will be raised. This doesn't mean that all will be saved because some will be raised in the end in order to be judged and consigned to hell forever. But the way this is worded, I mean, this reminds us that just and unjust Good and bad people will be saved and raised because both types of people have called out to Jesus to be saved. In Christ, remember, there is no good and bad people distinction anymore. Just good and bad people who've been saved by him. The same kind of grace. See, God is non-partial, indiscriminate. His blood is, it, 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 his spirit blows like the wind, it says, and it comes to all or to all types of people. And many times it's the most unlikely to show that it's not about our effort and the works of our hands and our morality, but, but the, works, the works of God. Now this is amazing, amazing news for sinners, but for the religious, for those who, who, who believe they can ascend to God and, and climb the ladder, this is incredibly angering and, and problematic and explains what, what we have going on here. All right, Felix is the last guy we'll look at today. Uh, and I'm calling this accurate but insufficient knowledge. Accurate but insufficient. All right, so ver- let's just read verse 22 to start. So Luke says here, Felix, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Is that interesting? So I have two things with Felix. One is a warning, and one is uh, an indictment. And, and, and through it all, we, we continue to learn more about what the gospel is and what it's not. But let's just start quickly with the warning. This one will go fast. But that simply is, it's possible to have, apparently, a rather accurate view of Christianity, but be, to be completely wrong at the same time. You guys see that? Felix had a rather accurate view, but he was completely wrong at the same time, completely misguided. And so we can kind of ruminate on that and and, and speculate what does that mean, right? And we don't totally know exactly what areas or points of theology he's, oh, actually we have some idea based off of what I'm going to say next, but we don't totally know. But we do know, as Luke records it, it's possible to have a rather accurate view of Christianity, but not a deep one and not a sufficient or saving one. And this is not just unique to this passage in the Bible. The Bible speaks about this in many places. Jesus speaks about it himself. Paul elsewhere in his letters. It's all over the place. But this is, this is another instance where we're seeing here, and I, and I said I was going to circle back to this, but, but Felix is maybe someone who has been inoculated but not infected by the disease. He, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but just understand it is very possible to have an accurate view, but not a sufficient one. It's possible to taste, but not drink. It's possible to know the facts, but not receive them. Like Jesus says in Matthew 7, on that last day, um, people will stand before him and say, did, not we, did we not perform any miracles in your name? Did we not like, 
stand as your ambassadors in the world? And Jesus will say to them, what? I never knew you. See, it's possible to know about Christianity but not know Christ or be known by him. You know, so that that can be a great litmus, litmus test too. Are you excited to see Jesus? Do you know him? Do you talk to him? Do you believe he died for you or just this kind of concept that he died for people out there? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty stark difference, right? And not that we're going to be perfect in that. We're not saved by having perfect theology. But there is a sign, there's a symptom, a symptom of the disease, so to speak. Just kind of stick with that metaphor. Is that we will know him and he will truly know us. We'll consider him like a husband to a bride, like a father to a child. We'll want to talk to him. We'll believe that there's peace now with him. We'll believe there's no more barrier. We'll believe he lives in us every day so we can whisper to him and just think in our mind and he's right there hearing our thoughts and we don't picture him a billion miles away in outer space. But he's here by his spirit. Acts has been saying, right, he's here by his spirit in the church. We see him in other people. We hear his voice call out to us through our friends in the faith and our spouses who are Christians and and we, we hear him in the songs we sing. We, we sense him that way. And in communion, we taste it. Right? Or are we just inoculated? Felix was just inoculated. He had an accurate knowledge, but he didn't actually fully receive it into his life. That's the warning. Uh, the, the indictment is, and I'll just, uh, I have a label for him here. We'll come back and unpack these three things kind of briefly. Uh, Felix is a greedy people pleaser who thinks we can just summon God whenever it's most convenient for us. That's who he is. So first, in verse 27, he's a people pleaser. And the lesson here is you cannot be a people pleaser and a truth embracer. Um, And we try to do this, and it's not like, you know, Christians are perfect at this. We're actually bad at it. That's kind of the point. We're saved from being, you know, a non-God pleaser in a sense, or a people pleaser. But in any case, still, we can't be a people pleaser and a truth embracer, especially when it pertains to Christianity. Tertullus here, now think about like this interaction that Tertullus and Paul have before Felix, the Roman governor. Tertullus is flattering him, right? Oh, you're so amazing. All these reforms are so great, and we have so much peace here, and by the way, did I tell you you're amazing? Because you are. You know, and it's just kind of like this flattery upon flattery upon flattery. Paul doesn't go there at all. Not that he's like insulting Felix. He's just talking about someone else altogether. And that's Jesus, which bothers Felix, right? It says he sends Paul away because he's bothered by part of the message. And so Paul is a truth speaker, a man of the truth, who is okay with offending people with the gospel. Please hear this, you guys. All of you, most of you have non-Christians in your life that God has placed there so you can witness to them. Your job is not to make them happy. The gospel, if you've learned anything from Acts, you know that the gospel will not make them happy. The gospel starts riots for crying out loud. So we should expect the same. Now, will it save people? Of course. And it will please people in the sense that it will be good news to them, but it will be problematic along the way because we don't flatter people with their good deeds. We say actually something else is needed than your good works. Your good works are not sufficient. Your good works are actually sending you to hell because you're replacing God with good. And that's part of what we've done is we put ourselves on the throne and our good deeds and our trophies, we've taken Jesus off. And that is the heart of sin. 
Not murder, not lying, not adultery. Those are sins, of course. But what's further upstream in the headwaters is replacing God with ourselves. So one, he's a people pleaser, which means he's not a gospel guy. Uh, Second, in verse 25, he's a misguided God summoner. So we see this actually in how he treats Paul. And remember, this is important to see Paul as a picture of Jesus. Otherwise, it won't make sense. So Christ is in Paul, and the way that he talks to Paul and treats him resembles how he's basically rejecting the message and treating Christ himself. And so here's what I mean. You can't just summon God whenever it's most convenient for you. Christianity isn't, I'll summon God. It's God summons us from the tomb. Isn't that great news? It's not based on you and you summoning him into your life at some point or receiving him in. It's about God coming in uninvited through people, through the Bible, through a message, through a dream. I mean, when God impacts us with his, with his gospel, with his Christ, in love. And in this case, Christ himself in Paul is right there before Felix, revealing truth to him. Christ is pursuing Felix. Christ is summoning Felix in a way out from his own tomb by speaking truth through Paul. So Christ is loving Felix here. And yet Felix is bothered by the message and just sends him away. Here's the lesson, and I want to just speak in a second to those of you who are almost Christians who are not yet um, and who are asking questions, and that's great. Uh, But if you are like especially kind of on the cusp and you're interested, you're curious, Here's the lesson, and for all of you uh, as well, as you think about this in your own life, but as you evangelize and so forth. But here's the lesson. If God is knocking, open now. If God is knocking, open now. Because there's no guarantee he will be knocking later in life. How do you know you'll even want to believe later in life? How do you know you'll be as curious? How do you know you'll feel your need for a Savior like you kind of are right now? See, that's from God, not from you. See, none of that's guaranteed. It's playing with fire to put off believing in Jesus when we presently realize he's at work pursuing me uh, through, through his people. All right, then last, and this kind of relates, uh, verse 26. Uh, Felix is a greedy comfortable king. This might be the worst of his attributes in ours because we're like this too, but this might be the worst of his attributes. We, 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 we think about God in selfish, transactional ways, not grace-centered ways. So in other words, and, and Peter Carlson, who's here somewhere, um, last week talked about this, but um, it, it's, it's like we, we make vows before God. We say, if you do this, God, then I'll do this. And in Felix's case, that's what he's doing. Did you, did you kind of catch that? Especially if you see Paul as a picture of Christ. He wants Paul to be treated well in prison so that Paul will give him money. You guys see that? Paul, the ambassador, the representative of Christianity. And Felix is like, I want to be treated well in prison so that maybe he'll, he'll pay me later. So he keeps calling Paul back to him so he can get money. This is a guy who knows a lot about Christianity, and yet, you see how he's a billion miles away at the same time? We do good for God 
This is like doing good for God, whatever that means, hoping that we'll get something from God in return. We, we bargain. But the gospel is not about bargaining. We can't give things to God that he should repay us. That's kind of like karma, or that's just religion. That's conditionality. That's not the gospel. Instead, we simply receive the gift of his son apart from the law, apart from our works, apart from effort. And so, do you see how, and this is where it gets kind of, the warning resurfaces here. Because, do you see how close Felix is to being saved? And yet he's not? Don't think that this can't be you, or isn't you, or might not be you in the future. I mean, he's a human, right? Our, our, who's a human in the room, right? I mean, we're all human. We share this. This should terrify us. Christian and non-Christian in the room, this should terrify us because we're not that unlike him. Felix understands, but when he doesn't get things from God, he sends Christianity away. He refashions the gospel into his own Felix-like religion, which is more about works and maybe deserving things from God than, than it is about grace. Not that it's wrong to want things like health or a spouse or children or a new job or friendships, etc., 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 nor is it wrong to pray for those things. God loves and delights in answering prayer for his children. But here's what's wrong. It's wrong to not see Jesus as sufficient alone. And it's obviously wrong to send him away when we don't think God is keeping his end of the bargain. Again, there's no bargain with God. He gives on his terms, and his terms are Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. And we receive. He loves, and we bask in that love. He shows grace undeservedly, and we get shocked by the scandal of it. This is how it looks. But all along, as we come to understand that gospel, we might suffer. Our prayers might not be answered in the way we would like. We have health issues come up. We suffer deaths of close friends and family. Our kids might rebel against the faith. Our church plants might not survive. We will feel oppressed by sin. What do you do in that moment? What do you think? Does God owe those things to you? Are you owed them because you've been a Christian for 20 years? Are you owed a comfortable life? I mean, if you would all think that, how are you, how are you not, un, not unlike Felix? Like, that's, we're just like him. And we miss it, right? This reminded me of Daniel 3 uh, this week. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are these faith-filled Jewish men in the Old Testament in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar the king wants to throw them in this fiery furnace and kill them publicly and burn them alive because they wouldn't bow down to his image fashioned in gold set up in the city. And so as these like faith-filled Jewish, God-fearing Jewish like Israelites, they, they believe in God, the Christian God, right? And so they're, they're like, they're not, we're not going to do that. But look at what they say. This exchange is beautiful and it relates to what I'm saying here. Let me just read this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. They're not people pleasers, right? All right, keep going. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Here's the key, though. 
But even if he does not, even if God chooses not to save me, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. If God never answers your prayers ever again the way you think, is that okay? Because you have Christ? Do you trust him? These men did. Be like them and don't not be like them. It is that simple. It really is. Repent from not having this attitude. Change. Beg God to change your heart that you won't be like Felix, that you won't be a people pleaser, that you be a truth-filled individual, that for you and me as a church, what I mean, by God's grace we have this, but what if we had it all the more where we prayed this way, where we just had this posture before the world. We suffer deeply, but it's okay. We just want the world to know that Jesus rose from the dead and he defeated death for me. And that's enough. And that's enough. All right, in conclusion, a couple things here. I'll just read these as, as a form of summary. When Christianity comes, it comes with history, truthfulness, innocence, offense, and also with fantastic claims like the resurrection of the dead, that God orchestrates all of history as he wills it, that he sent his one and only son to slay death on our behalf, and that he is coming again to judge the lost and save his people, which is a beautiful mix of history, testimony, miracles, good news, hope, and warnings. Here's what it's ultimately about, though. It's about him there. And I want to borrow some language and concepts from Acts 24 and summarize the gospel for you here in this last paragraph. This right here, him on the cross, this is how God summons us from the tombs. This is how he gives us the riches of his grace. This is how he doesn't pay us back for our wrongdoing, but absorbs it himself. So our debts are covered. This is how he reforms the old way of laws and conditions and instead makes a new way for peace by his blood and shows us his kindness, which then leads us to repentance. And this is not convenient or calculated or comfortable. It throws a wrench in the gears of all of our ambitions, works, and plans because it's love. And love interrupts the consequences of our actions, not flattering us for the good we've done, but comforting us with never-ending promises in spite of what we've done. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for the gospel in Acts 24. Father, help us to believe the gospel. Help us to be men and women who are of grace, not works, who point constantly away and outside of ourselves to the virus of the gospel. So that so all we can say, like and no one chooses to be infected by viruses, it just happens. So we can say, Christ saved me. Christ came into my life. And I was barely even looking for him. I was actually sprinting towards hell. But he allowed a root to come up in the, in the race path and I tripped over it. And he was there to pick me up and get right in my face and say how much he loved me and how much he died for me. And that it wasn't by the laws or the stipulations or the works anymore. It was about his bloody body that made a way for peace. Because the law never made a way for peace in the Old Testament. It never says the law makes way for peace. It says Christ and his blood makes way for peace. They are different. 
they are a contrast to show us all the more it's not about us, but about you. A beautiful you, a beautiful God who came into the world um, to raise the dead. So thank you, Father, for doing that. Help us to respond now in song and communion with joy and thanksgiving. In your name, amen.